Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3. You can follow along with me in the bulletin. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a slightly less brutal reading. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. 
And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. And so he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they were going to receive even more. But each of them also received the daily wage. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to those of us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts, O oh God, on these hard words be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Cain and Abel, workers in a vineyard, cars trying to get into or out of the Lincoln Tunnel. We compete with each other, don't we? Life is a contest in which you prove your worth by trying to get your fair share of attention, of love, of salary, of recognition of whatever it is you think you need while watching to make sure the other guy doesn't get any more of all those things than you think they deserve. Siblings are a great example of this. I love to tell the story about our two kids. When Maggie was around 10 and William around 13, I could hear them arguing upstairs about what else, access to the bathroom, at first, I thought to myself, it doesn't sound too bad. They're just, you know, arguing. They'll work it out themselves. But pretty soon, the sound escalated from what I would call a spirited debate into all-out warfare. So I stomped upstairs, ready to dole out dad justice. When I got there, William wisely had retreated into his room and was silent as a church mouse. On the other hand, our daughter, characteristically, was not silent. In fact, she was 
wailing loudly in her room, so I decided to start there. I went in and I said, sweetie, what's the matter? Expecting her to regale me with a list of her brother's crimes, crime for which he was not punished enough in her estimation. But what she said to me was this, amidst racking sobs, doesn't he understand that one day he's going to work for me? <laughs> and if you know her, you know that's true. Now I have a little sister too. Our family relationships, your family relationships, our sibling relationships are blueprints for how we approach life. I believe that. How we're going to negotiate for or fight for what we think we need. And sooner or later, I know from experience, sooner or later, whether it's fighting over the bathroom or whatever else it is that we want, you and I are going to yell, and more than once, that is not fair. Anne Crittenden is an author who wrote a book for women considering business careers titled, If You've Raised Kids, You Can Manage Anything. In her book, Crittenden suggests that children are hardwired for fairness. And she surmises that this is due to the bad old days when parental partiality could be fatal for the less favored child. As an example, she tells of visiting the Galapagos Islands where she observed the parenting practices of a bird called the blue-footed booby. I'm not making this up. The blue-footed booby hatches two eggs. Then she watches these two eggs closely and observes which of the newborn chicks is the sturdiest and most likely to survive. Then she boots the other chick out of the nest to die. It appears that second child was just a spare. And as the older of two siblings, this actually makes sense to me. <laughs> Though truth be told, if it came to survivability, my sister will probably outlive me. Small children, writes Anne Crittenden, view any trace of parental favoritism with the same panic that must have been felt by that luckless booby chick. Every parent has heard the anguished cries, her piece of pie is bigger than mine. I want one just like Johnny's. You love him better than me. Unfairness can feel like a matter of life and death. And at one time, Crittenden says, that's exactly what it was. It's the oldest contention in human history. That's not fair. Today, we're remembering Adam and Eve's two boys. First two boys, there were three, actually. Seth comes later. And then, apparently, Seth and Cain marry women. We don't know where they came from, right? So try not to read these ancient, truth-bearing, identity-shaping stories too literally, because your head will go into knots. But there is truth there, this deep human truth, God's truth to the world. Cain and Abel brought their offerings to God sincerely after working hard. And for some reason, God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. That's not fair, Cain cried out in his heart and his resulting anger and resentment and desperate fear like that booby chick led him to murder 
his own brother. Devastating. This is the reason, by the way, that some families who are quite together for years and years and generations, years and years and years and generations, aren't as soon as the will is read. What others got, I didn't get. And what that means is it's not fair. It's why people, you and I, human beings, will always feel victimized at some point or at many points along our way. Hey, that wasn't supposed to happen that way. I did my part. Why don't I get what I want, what I deserve, what I think I can't live without? That's not fair. Jesus tells a parable about a landowner who gets up early in the morning, about 6 o'clock, goes out to hire workers for his vineyard, which was a common practice in that part of the world, especially during the grape harvest. Getting workers at the spur of the moment, storms could easily come in and ruin a crop that had taken months to develop. And when the grapes were ready, it was important to get that harvest in as quickly as possible. So for a time, anyone who wanted a job could have one. The work was hard. Working hours in the ancient Middle East were from dawn to sunset, a 12-hour day. And I actually worked on an archaeological dig outside of Caesarea in Israel one time. We worked from 4 a.m. to noon because after that it was too hot. You could not even poke your head outside of shade. The wage for this long 12-hour day's work back then was one denarius or silver coin. In our NRSV translation, it is the usual daily wage. One coin. Think what it is that you earn in a day That's your denarius. Anglican pastor Tim Chesterton makes the point that a denarius was not only the average daily wage for a worker, but it was also the average daily cost for surviving for one and one's family. It did not allow for any leeway or room to maneuver. There was no flexibility. A denarius, which you worked an entire day for, would buy your family what they needed to stay alive for an entire day. So, during the grape harvest, men who wanted to work would go to the town square and wait. It was like an employment center. Or, if you've been to Home Depot down in Bloomfield early in the morning, you've seen it, right? Guys standing around hoping to get hired for a day or any part of a day that they can get paid for. And just like today, if someone was unable to find work, then that person's family may not eat. And if you found work for just a part of a day, well, then they may eat, but not enough maybe to survive, certainly to ease their hunger pangs. So I hope by taking some time to develop that, we'll appreciate a little bit what's at stake for the workers in this parable. It is material but it's also psychological and emotional. For them and for us, underneath our longing for fairness is our longing for security and for survival. We want to be treated fairly. That means that we are recognized, that we exist. The youngest children in a family just want to be recognized. You know, if you look at the family photo albums of families with lots of kids, The older kids, all kinds of photos, right? 
You go down the line, like there's one picture of each for me every year or something like that. I'm the older kid. I don't see the problem. But it's true. Our deep-seated sense of existential, ontological identity is in underneath this issue today. So the landowner, Jesus tells us, goes out at 6 in the morning, negotiates for a denarius for the day, the usual daily wage, sends the guys out. 9 o'clock goes out, finds some more workers, does the same thing, same thing at noon, same thing at 3. They're still hanging out. They haven't been hired. No one else is hiring. This landowner is the only game in town, so he tells them, you go work as well. Then he goes out at 5 o'clock, and there's still some stragglers. Sends them into the vineyard. It's all good, right? Everybody's getting to work. Everybody can make at least a little bit, right? I'm cool with that. How about you? Depends on which worker you are, I guess. Then quitting time comes, and the owner of the vineyard starts handing out the paychecks with the last ones hired being paid first and going on down to the first ones hired. And the last ones hired got paid one denarius. And then the three o'clock guys, one denarius, noon, one denarius, 9 a.m. You got it, one denarius. But those 9 a.m. people, they're not happy because the 6 a.m. folks are even less happy. Hey, I've been working all day. It's not easy out here in this sun. Can you imagine their disappointment, their outrage, their sense of victimization? I get mad when someone cuts the line at CVS, which they do. That's not fair. You have made them equal to us, the early birds say. Those of us who've borne the burden of all this entire day's work, you have made them equal to us. That's what we cannot stand. But the landowner answered, hey, I'm not being unfair to you. We had a deal. Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Take your pay and go. I, if I want to give the one who was hired last the same amount, then I'm going to do it. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am being generous? And then Jesus adds these last cryptic words. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. <coughs> Now call me crazy or be amazed and astounded by my Sherlock Holmes ability to deduce from clues, but I've got to conclude that Jesus isn't that interested in fairness. Hate to break it to you. In fact, and I'll deny this if you tell anybody, I don't think Jesus ever talks much about fairness. Apparently, it's not that important to him. So why is it important, so important to us? That's not to say fairness isn't a laudable goal, a standard we should shoot for, based on the things Jesus does say. But you and I would not be incorrect to say that this parable isn't about fairness. How's that for a sentence with a bunch of negatives in it? This parable today is not about fairness, because fairness, in that sense, does not exist. 
Or maybe when it does exist, it's like a flash of lightning, and it's gone. It's a lot like the kingdom of heaven, right? It's a vision. And yet we keep expecting fairness. We keep demanding fairness. We keep basing our entire selfhood on fairness. Everything we are, we think, depends upon it. An Australian newspaper, the Melbourne Age, uh, included an intriguing report entitled, Monkeys Want to See Justice Done. At the University of Melbourne, apparently, researchers have been testing capuchin monkeys. They gave monkeys the task of picking up a small granite stone and bringing it to the researcher within one minute. If they were successful, they were rewarded with, uh, with a slice of cucumber. That wouldn't work for me. Uh, the scheme worked well with these monkeys. It was a happy lab situation as long as each monkey received the same wage. But things turned sour when the researchers varied the pattern. They tried giving one monkey a grape instead of a cucumber for his reward. Indignation broke out. The other monkeys tried giving, uh, getting the other monkeys grape. First, the other monkeys then withheld their labor. They went on strike like the Hollywood writers. And then they all threw away their cucumbers and their stones. Take that. The experiment with cappuccino monkeys had offended the monkeys' sense of justice. How human. We are happy with our lot until we see someone else who's better off, someone who gave the same or less effort than we did. Friends, this parable, this word from God today is not about fairness. It isn't about telling us that we should always try to balance the scales. Jesus doesn't waste his breath on that kind of admirable but unrealistic goal for the way that we live as human beings. No, this parable is about the generosity of God. God who pours out God's grace full and completely on anyone and all who will open themselves to it. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So the first will be last, and the last will be first. And as biblical readers, do not forget that very important word, so. Jesus tells the parable, and then in conclusion, after making his case, laying out his argument, he uses the word that high schoolers learn to use when they're writing expositions, their, exposition, uh, their expository papers, so... The last will be first, and the first will be last. I can love whomever I choose. Oh, but we want and we demand to be treated fairly at the very least. I really love the honesty of an author by the name of Jin S. Kim in his book, The Last Shall Be First. Jin Kim writes, I was seven years old when my family immigrated to the United States, and I remember the exact moment when I knew that I had become a true American. It wasn't the day I received my citizenship. It was the day I thought to myself, we got to do something about all these foreigners coming into this country. That sounds pretty American to me.
It's a natural feeling. It's a human feeling. Again, it's based on our inner sense of desire and need for survival. But fairness as a life goal isn't going to work. It's not going to happen for me or for you or for anybody other than very sort of little moments along the way, maybe. Fairness cannot happen. God's love, on the other hand, can and does and is super realistic as an alternative goal or foundation for my life and for yours. God's love, it turns out, is not fleeting. It is without limits. God's love is arbitrary, and thank God for that, because I don't want God to count up my score. Do you? It doesn't follow the rules. It doesn't run out or end once the scales are balanced. An author by the name of Joel Klein wrote, when our only measure is fairness, when our preoccupation is our just desserts, we lose touch with a sense of grace and graciousness. We forget about the wild cards, the surprises, the people who loved us anyway or even loved us more than we deserve, and the God who extends generosity and forgiveness to us far beyond and far deeper than what is fair. God is not a scorekeeper. Despite what you might have heard, God pours out God's grace without reservation and without regard to who deserves it and who does not. And if that bothers you, the Bible says, get over it. There are no limits on grace. Grace is amazing, not calculable, not predictable. The writer Philip Yancey, and I'll end with this, tells about an incident that occurred some years ago. Journalist Bill Moyers did a documentary based on him, Amazing Grace, and one of the more unusual scenes in that film took place at a massive benefit concert in England. And at that concert, all day, fans had been blasted with hard-driving metal music, the kind I listened to in high school. Def Leppard, before the drummer lost his arm, I was there twice. ACDC rocked it, right? I get this. But strangely, the concert organizers had scheduled opera singer Jesse Norman to close this concert. Fans reacted negatively when Miss Norman first took the stage. Here was a middle-aged black woman without any backup band, depending completely on her voice and singing a completely different genre to people who didn't normally listen to her. But she silenced the crowd with her opening line, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And soon, thousands of young fans were singing along with this humble, life-changing hymn. Something to put your weight down on and build your life on that actually exists. It's been said that more people in this country know the words to Amazing Grace than know the words to our national anthem. That wouldn't surprise me. Amazing Grace, it's not fair, it's not just, it's simply unbelievably but very realistically generous. Amazing Grace, not fairness, is how life really works. And it's all ours for the taking today. Amen.